Hello and welcome to the show this week. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, before I introduce my guest this week, uh, just a notice for you. You might already have seen it on social media, but the New Culture Forum is hosting a very important conference in a few weeks' time. Uh, it's going to be entirely dedicated to the issue of immigration. Uh, we have a lot of good speakers. We have Professor David Coleman, Professor Matthew Goodwin, Professor Eric Kaufman, all the, all the professors, um, as well as members from the smaller parties, uh, Ben Habib from Reform, William Clouston from SDP, and Lawrence Fox from Reclaim. And it's just to discuss in a constructive way how we deal with what we see as being the most important issue facing this country. Uh, if you're interested in going, please do get in touch, contact at newcultureforum.org.uk and then we can send you details. Um, also, there is a, an invitation on Eventbrite. Um, but, you know, if you want to find out more about it and where it is, um, it is in London, Saturday, October the 7th. Um, but do get in touch, contact at newcultureforum.org.uk. Now, my guest uh, this week, uh, is the MP for Devices. Uh, Danny Kruger was elected in 2019. Um, before that, he was a speechwriter for David Cameron, and he was political secretary in 2019 uh, to Boris Johnson. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you, Danny. Um, a new book. You've got a, a book out, uh, Covenant, The New Politics of Home, Neighbourhood and Nation. This is it here. Um, the new politics, new politics, on the face of it, that sounds a little bit like the old politics. Um, by that, I mean very traditional Tory. Mm. Would you well, say that's fair? It is quite fair because I am a traditional Tory and make no bones about it. And I think that uh, many of our present discontents can be traced to mistakes that we've made in the recent past and, and going further back, you know, some decades or even centuries, and I, we could discuss where we've gone wrong. But I call it the new politics for a very deliberate reason, partly in order to insulate myself against the attack that I simply want to turn the clock back. Yeah. And I genuinely don't. Um, but really because I think that the, the politics of home, neighbourhood and nation, the associations that give us identity and meaning and, and fulfilment are also the proper foundations of freedom. And they're the foundations for success in the modern age. And the 21st century, presenting all these huge complex challenges and threats, many of them driven by technology, of course. I think the ideas around the home, the neighbourhood and the nation are what will fit us best for the future. So it's a paradox that conservatives should not be uncomfortable with. But it is a paradox to most modern ears that actually the, you stand in the old ways and you find paths that will help you to prosper and to navigate the future. And just to give a quick uh, idea of that, Peter, I represent a part of Wiltshire that looks very old-fashioned, and it is, and that's why people love it. And it's the ancient landscape of England. And yet, we have in Wiltshire some of the most innovative and forward-leaning companies doing, de developing really exciting, particularly tech businesses. And I think it's possible to have a, a life that has all of the virtues of the old ways, healthy environment, a life lived close to home, properly part of your community, able to spend time with your family, all the things that we think of as the mm. old ways, mm. while also being properly part of the modern economy. So without being naively optimistic or Panglossian, because I don't believe in that mm. way of thinking, uh, 
Nevertheless, I do think that the 21st century could be great, but we have to remember the old truths in order to prosper. When you say that there in, in, uh, in your area, in Wilshire, there is, you know, uh, there's been a, a growth in tech industry and, and small businesses, uh, 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 do I take it that you mean in old villages and towns? Well, yes. I mean, in, in, so you have people living in cottages, you know, build, build, buildings built in the 18th century, 17th century, and yet they're, if they've got good broadband, which is a key consideration, yeah. which we always need to, uh, we do need to do more on. But, you know, super fast broadband has come to a lot mm. of the country and people are doing amazing things there. But also, yes, on the edges of our villages and towns, little industrial estates, converted farm buildings, up these little tracks uh, off the main roads, you have small units and offices and, uh, and little factories making really, really high-tech stuff that, that, that they can export across the world. So I do think we don't have to, we certainly don't have to turn the clock back economically or in terms of a lot of social change as well. But we can have, I think, a more rooted and a more local life if we yes. organise our politics and our economy better. It's interesting because uh, the, the, the French novelist, you know, Michel Houellebecq, uh, I, think, I think it was his book, uh, The Map and the Territory, I think. Um, but he actually, because he writes a lot, I don't know if you know his stuff, but he writes mm. a lot in the future. He saw this happening in France, actually, that in fact, uh, villages and towns, market towns, which were on de the decline, mm. uh, suddenly had this second life because of uh, new, new small businesses. Um, however, it was based very much on a huge decline in the cities, mm. people going. I mean, do mm. you think that's a problem? Well, it needs to be managed. I mean, it's, you know, Wiltshire, which we're talking about, was an economic powerhouse in the Middle Ages, very prosperous place. You can tell that from the architecture of our towns and villages. It's been a bit of an economic backwater since industrialization, uh, since the, the, uh, the move to the cities took all the people and, and, and the wealth in the 18th and 19th century. And that's, of course, partly why it's been preserved so beautifully. Mm -hmm. But it means that there hasn't, you know, there's been a drain of people, and, and even now, we uh, send our young people away from Wiltshire, and they don't come back until they're older or even retiring. Yep. So there is a problem with that, and I think I would like to undo that, but I don't think it needs to be traumatic for the cities because mm. we're going to need cities. Cities are vital to the mm. prosperity of the country. They can also be very flourishing places, and actually, the the vision I try and paint here is certainly not a rural one. Mm. I mean, I've lived and worked in inner city London, done a lot of work in with some pretty tough social conditions. I did a lot of work in, with prisons and with families at risk for many years mm. uh, before I was an MP. And, and you know, the, the life that is needed in the inner city is the same. We need people to have strong families. That's the mm. primary cause of the social breakdown that we mm. see around us, of course. Mm -hmm. But also they need strong communities. And that's a set of reforms that I discuss here around local government, public services, and crucially the, the world of work and the economy. Mm. If we get that right, we will have, a, I think, a better urban uh, society as well and but 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 in answer to your question I would like to see people living a full life in market towns coastal communities in rural areas you didn't should not have to move to the city to have a full life you might want to move for a while go to study or to work but we need places like Wiltshire and the and the and the provincial towns of England uh, coastal communities to to thrive otherwise the model that we had in the 20th century of everything being about a small handful of big cities is a disastrous one for most of the country. Because um, for, for quite some time, people talked about the 21st century as being, didn't they, the century of the city? Yes. I think even Sadiq Khan. Mm. 
I mean, they thought this was the way that obviously that has not happened. I mean, it's yes. just it's not it's gone yes. into into reverse. Point is about when I was reading this actually, um, Danny, which um, you know I, I did didn't disagree with with any of it. Uh, but the thing that kept on occurring to me is that you have got the devil's own job in a way in trying to put something like this into mm. action because the whole cultural drift seems to be against these things. I mean. Simple things, home, neighborhood, nation, what David Goodhart called, you know, the somewhere, mm. somewhere people. But, it, but he also pointed out that most people are somewhere people. There are more somewheres mm. than, than there are anywheres. The anywheres have the power in our culture and mm. our economy. And there is a gentle, very English revolution going on at the moment, and I hope it stays gentle. Uh, and it will if we win. Uh, there is a pushback against the, the culture of, of, of recent decades, particularly of this, of this century, and you talk about Sadiq Khan and, and the, and the ten, trend towards the cities, that's been a, a part of a general cultural and economic change or, or, or a mistake that I think mm. we've made in our, in our lifetimes. But it's changing, and you represent part of that, Peter. There's a whole constellation now of think tanks, of, uh, of commentators, of critics, uh, and increasingly of politicians mm. who are saying... Uh, the, the, the model, the consensus that we've had since the end of the Cold War, since the end of Thatcherism in this country, that we just need more liberation, more mobility, more flexibility, less friction in our society. We need greater personal freedom and, and choice in all respects, and that nothing matters except the realisation of individual uh, self-realisation. You know, mm, uh, uh, or narcissism. Or, which, which, sadly so. So without undoing and you know we must also recognize that our culture is based on the principle of freedom and mm -hmm. and the, the, the essential sanctity of the individual actually mm -hmm. is not being someone that can just be pushed around by the state or by society so without losing that essential western blessing which is the equality and freedom of individuals mm -hmm. nevertheless we need to remi remind ourselves that the real freedom of the individual rests in, in in a social context that you are only free if you first belong and the foundation of prosperity is, is, is in the rootedness of, uh, of home and of neighborhood. And then, and then nation is this great new, it's almost a discovery of our very recent times. And Brexit for me represented a great cry from the public that yes, nations matter. Mm. And, the, and, the, and the early 20th, 21st century idea, the sort of post-Cold War idea that boundaries could be dissolved, mm. uh, that we're all globalists, uh, and that we need to tear down every boundary between peoples and nations uh, and have free movement of people, of capital, all of these things, much as in a sense those things have driven economic progress in large parts of the world and some mm. progress for us in the UK. Nevertheless, it was a wrong turn and that actually we need to remember that nations are meaningful and Brexit represented the great cry from the public for that principle. You see, this in a way is my point with Brexit. Yes, of course, I would agree with you, it did. Mm. Um, but uh, there was then a three-year period of trying to thwart it. And I would say that it was, th that was the, the voice of the people speaking in 2016. Um, but then you had this huge sort of unelected opposition going through all the institutions, and I have to say sort of parliament as well, actually, but essentially trying to thwart that. And I, I worry, I do not think that the effect of that has been to really to embed disillusionment amongst people? Mm. I think that 
the Brexiteer movement, or parts of it, certainly the parts that got into the ascendance immediately after the Brexit referendum, and, and, and the, bit, the parts of the Brexiteers around the government at the time, Theresa May's government, sadly underestimated both the ill will of the European Union. Yeah. They were naive in thinking that the, the, our friends in Europe would, would, would accept the vote of the people. And they underestimated the resistance in the system. And so I think with hindsight, it's apparent that we did Brexit badly for some years. And it took the great heroic moment of 2019 uh, and Boris Johnson to say we are going to leave no matter what uh, to break the logjam. So, mm -hmm. yes, I think there was disillusionment in those years. And, but I'm more concerned about the disillusionment since. So mm -hmm. we were elected and I became an MP in that great election in 2019 mm -hmm. when Boris said uh, we need to get Brexit done. I think that was a mandate for far more than just delivering mm. Brexit, getting mm. out of the EU. I mean, the, the vote in 2016 was about more than mm. departure from the EU. It was, as I say, a cry for a new form of politics that obviously put national sovereignty at the heart of it. But also, I believe, and I think the polls demonstrate this, what people were voting for then and in 2019 was a reorientation of the economy and a, a, a desire to take back control of the culture. Yes. And I fear that both on the economic and the cultural fronts. For reasons that we can understand, uh, including the great distractions of COVID and then the war in Ukraine and the economic uh, shock that that induced. But I think more profoundly, I'm afraid to say, because we have not ourselves had the resolution as a party and a government mm -hmm. to deliver on the mandate that we won in 2019. And I think too many of our traditional voters mm -hmm. uh, who've always supported us, um, but, 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 but almost more sadly, worse, those voters who came over to us mm. for the first time, mm. last time, put their trust in us and in our party. Possibly people who didn't vote before at all, certainly haven't voted Conservative before. Uh, and they, 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 they put their faith in us and we haven't yet delivered for them. And that's, our, I mean, you know, in terms of bringing us up to date, that's our mission now. That's what we've got to do. Because, I mean, I would agree the, the Red Wall um, vote, there were, at the time in 2019, the election did seem more important in an odd way than Brexit. You know, it was it was an absolute affirmation of everything. But mm. um, by the same token, um, the you know the people who put their trust, if you like, in the Conservative Party feel pretty betrayed. And um, I am just wondering how you think you can get them back. I mean, yeah. you know, the fact is, it's highly unlikely the Tory Party is going to win the next election. Doesn't this sort of really show, doesn't it really amount to the most appalling kind of lost opportunity? Because I remember being very excited about this realignment. So you put it absolutely correctly. I was in, it was the most thrilling moment, bliss yeah. it was in that dawn. You know, in 2019, we came back from the election campaign with a huge majority, not, and, and therefore certainty that we would put Brexit, get Brexit through, put it behind us, brackets, Northern Ireland to one side. Nevertheless, we would deliver Brexit in the 90% uh, of it. And, uh, and then we would get on with the real job. And the, the real job was to fix the British state, mm. uh, to enable it to govern well. And that, and that included fixing the Treasury, correcting the economic model, uh, investing in and liberating the entrepreneurial spirit of the whole country. You know, all the things that we promised to do. Mm. And it was a very, very exciting moment. And I do feel a great sense of shame that so far we haven't delivered sufficiently for those voters. I think there's some things we can point to. 
but for reasons we could go into and you know we can apportion blame or, or make excuses in, in all sorts of directions all of which are partly true but we haven't yet done it and you know you ask can we yet and can we rebuild trust and connection well actually I think we can and I think we've got some opportunities and some as it were assets to do that I mean the main fact the fact is that although a lot of people are saying they are not inclined to vote for us again they're not yet saying they're going to vote Labour which is of course what you know what would require a change of government so we've got a lot of people who are disillusioned inclined to stay at home or possibly vote for other parties fringe parties those people are still up for grabs in order to win them back I don't think we can just assume that you know fixing some presenting problems like reducing the number of small boats or reducing inflation will be sufficient I think we have to properly lean into that realignment that we saw in 2019 make a very clear dividing line we need to show people you've got to choose option A or option B not option A1 and A2 you know mm. it's there's got to be a clear difference mm. between us and Labour that involves I think some quite radical economic proposals as well as being really robust on immigration and the economy and uh, and those are not going to be easy things to pull off because the whole weight of the the establishment that we've discussed is committed to the status quo I'm afraid to say large parts of our own party and our donors important mm, 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 voice mm. in this uh, there's the, the, the sort of conservative establishment is uh, is is invested in the status quo and and a lot of my colleagues well-meaning decent clever capable people uh, don't want to touch these topics they think that they're uh, in for a dig so but, but we have a challenge no, it's, this is what I, I, I just don't quite understand, because uh, you say they don't want to touch it. Even if you were the most opportunistic politician, mm. uh, you would possibly, you could surely see the level of support there would be for tougher immigration controls, or, you know, basically the woke, what, what you might call the woke, you mm. know, march through the institutions, all, all of those things. Um, it's just waiting, in a way, to be represented. Um, my experience of speaking to people in the Tory party um, was that many people um, seem not to take seriously enough or even understand what you might call the cultural aspects of what we're talking about. Yes. They, they, uh, you, you would hear things like, you know, political correctness gone mad, you know, these kind of rather old, or this is all nonsense. And you don't quite get what's yes. been happening, no, do you? I think that's right. I think there is a... An assumption in some quarters that yes, this is just this is this, this is just a bit of silliness, and mm. uh, and and a few you know students are jumping up and down about you know trans rights or whatever. You know the, the grown-ups, we conservatives, shouldn't be indulging in those conversations. Obviously, we shouldn't be uh, going all the way that, they, that those activists want to, but we have to thread a bit of a path. And mm. but most crucially, we have to focus on the things that people care about: cost mm. of living and public mm. services without understanding that actually all these things are connected. And the reason these cultural topics, which seem very niche, are so salient politically is because they speak to the deep things mm. that concern us and they speak to the matters of the heart and, and our relationships. And so questions around sex and gender, bizarre mm. as they appear, and it's very interesting for us to discuss why this bizarre new uh, phenomenon has developed. But wherever it comes from, it is of great importance to families. Mm. Uh, anyone with children, anyone with kids in schools, anyone you know who cares about the equality of the sexes, 
will be very concerned about this. Mm -hmm. And I think that my colleagues who think that these are niche, irrelevant topics are, are very misguided. But so the challenge for us is how to present those, present what I think of as a true and conservative and common sense realistic position in a way that doesn't look like we ourselves are yeah. stirring up trouble for the sake of it. I mean, you know, we are, we're accused of being culture warriors, of stoking up division. We didn't start this mm -hmm. madness. Mm -hmm. We're just trying to resist it. Mm. Uh, but we do need to resist it very forcefully. I mean, courteously and respectfully, but we do need to resist it very strongly. Actually, in, in the book, I'm interested to see that you, um, when talking about the, this, this ideological movement, which has become so, well, important and prevalent, uh, you actually say Marxism has become cultural mm. in one sense. Isn't mm. it? Um, I mean, I, I th I've got a lot of time for that argument, but mm. do you actually think that's what has been infiltrating, in, in, you know, institutions? Not to, I don't mean in a, you know, kind of a conspiratorial... No. No. You, you know what I mean. Yes, I do. Well, I think, it, I mean, it, it's cultural, genuinely, yeah. in the sense that it has come through the shifts in, uh, in, in the intellectual discourse that happened after the Second World War mm -hmm. when... Marxism was adopted by a, a new set of, of mostly French but, but European and British sort of revolutionary intellectuals, and the old idea of the you know the Marxist binary of, of capital and labour being in eternal conflict uh, became cultural. So instead of capital and labour, you have the forces of the oppressed and the oppressor uh, in cultural in a cultural sense. So we get into identity politics. Mm. So. The place of capital is taken by the patriarchy, the heteronormative, uh, the uh, white privilege, mm -hmm. uh, with the Western, uh, and the position of the of, of the workers of labour is taken by the severally oppressed, sexually, racially, uh, and who, who, of course, despite their very obvious uh, tensions between those different groups, are mm -hmm. themselves. Uh, unified through the doctrine of intersectionality, so that if mm. you're gay and black, you have particular mm. additional mm. injustice that you're struggling against. It's a very convenient way of keeping the tribe of the of the oppressed together uh, and, and identifying a singular enemy, which is the, the, the white patriarchy, heteronormative patriarchy. So, so I think that's that's the the simple Marxist sort of structure yep. of the argument that we're now facing. And uh, even if people are no longer economic Marxists. They are cultural Marxists, whether they acknowledge the the, the terms or not, and, um, and 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 yes, it has infiltrated, embedded itself into our certainly into our universities, and I'm afraid to say into many of our institutions. And the government, the conservative ministers in in Whitehall, are themselves always struggling against a mindset among many officials, many civil servants, who don't think that they're revolutionaries, but essentially are dismantling the traditional structures of our society and. It's a tough act. It's a tough job to fight when the government itself, the, minute, the, the officials of, who make the government, are themselves transgressive. Do you actually it's, uh, interesting because it's, this has suddenly become, as, as we speak, past couple of days, it's being discussed in the press because of this interview with this uh, chief civil civil servant um, chief Laura Kunzberg. Oh yes, um, about the about Brexit. Actually. Yes, but um, the arguments come up. You know, look, why don't we face it? Uh, we don't have a neutral civil service. Mm. Uh, why don't we go the American way? I mean, what, what do you think about so that? So I think that, so yes, you've got the, the former head of the Foreign Office telling his officials that he'd voted for Remain. Yeah. Um, 
which can't have astonished anybody, but it, it's astonishing that he says so. Uh, and 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 yes, I mean, you know, as you talk to ministers, you discover they are they are, you know, without exception, up against an institutional agenda mm. in the in the machine. I think we do have a problem that ministers come in, whether it's a change of party at, at a general election or just a new ministers are appointed, and they're they're allowed to bring you know one or two special advisors. Uh, and they might be able to bring in a couple of other expert advisors as well. But they're, 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 the, the team they bring with them, you can count on one hand. And yet they're then reliant on the advice of uh, uh, thousands, literally, uh, of civil servants if they're in the office. Many of them are no longer are present. But nevertheless, they produce these submissions which flow up the hierarchy uh, into the minister's office. And, and so, yes, in answer to your question, I do think we need a system whereby the ministers and the government is able to appoint a, the upper tier of, of Whitehall uh, and bring in a cadre of subject specialists and people who are ideologically aligned with what mm -hmm. the government wants to do, because ultimately the public have uh, elected the government. The government should be empowered to direct the, the bureaucracy. But, but, you know, it's often said, increasingly you hear it, you know, the government is not the government. The government mm. doesn't run the government. Mm. So the elected government does not run the, the permanent apparatus of the state. And uh, that is disastrous. I mean, mm. that, is, that is absolutely fatal to our democracy, if that's the case. So whether people like it or not, uh, they, I think in whether they like the government of the day or not, I think they should allow ministers to bring their own advisors mm. and have a far greater degree of control over uh, civil service appointments. Yes, because it, it seems that everything is thwart, being thwarted now. I've, Broadly speaking, an anti-conservative, mm. you know, uh, movement in that way. Um, you spoke at something called the NatCon uh, earlier this year, uh, National Conservative Conference. But so I did one of the sessions, mm. sessions there, um, and it was interesting because your speech was considered one of the highlights of it. Mm. And you you made the point about marriage um, being, you know, uh, the, the 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 essential marriage between a Man and a woman should um, they should stay together for the sake of children, and that this was the bedrock of society. Um, but many people in your own party sort of rather sort of rather you know uh, tended to distance themselves from that. I think including yeah. even number ten. Um, mm. I mean, this is not a good uh, this is not a good sign, is it, for the Tory party? If something is previously innocuous as that. Yes, well, I mean, I thought I was saying something pretty innocuous. What I wasn't saying, which was interpreted, you know, reported, and in a sense, I think that's what my colleagues were distancing themselves from, even if I think they should have shown more backbone. Uh, although some of them actually actively disagree with this, which is significant, but I think most people just didn't like the, the headline. The headline I got was, you know, that I'm somehow criticising non-normative families, you know, gay parents or single parents or the unmarried. And of course, I, it's not for me to judge anybody's family relations or who they love or live with or, or how they conduct their lives. But I do think the government has a business in generalising. I mean, the government does generalise. At the moment, it generalises in favour of family breakup. Uh, I think we should be generalising in, in favour of family stability. And that means recognising the particular value to society uh, of marriage and of the relations and the obligations that, that parents have to their children and to their own parents, by the mm -hmm. way. This is all, also, always remember the older generation in these conversations. Intact families are better for the elderly as well as for the young. Mm -hmm. And uh, my simple point in that, what I thought was an innocuous bit of 
throat clearing in my speech before I said something more interesting was you know the, the basis of a safe and stable society is families mm. in which in which people stay together it doesn't mean you have to stay together and we've all got experiences in our lives and you know, close family members of course who haven't been able to sustain their relationships and it might well be the very best thing for them and their children for them to not to be together so I'm not in the judgment business but I am in the policy making business mm. and I think policy should Insofar as it's possible, and it's a very difficult thing to do, how to do this, but I think rather than incentivizing the dissolution of families, we should be incentivizing the stability of families. Yes. It's also, it's rather telling, you know, that people should immediately say, or accuse one of being judgmental, or right. as you say, or in some ways, you know, leaping on, 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 on the sentence and, and saying, you know, I think that somebody was criticizing you. Or have you ever been in an abusive marriage and things like that? Mm. Uh, it seems to be that, that, therefore, the cultural thrust is actually just anti-family. I mean, mm. you know, people often say, oh, it's about the tax system and how that works against families, etc. It's not really just that. I mean, mm. the whole emphasis has been against the or well, against all the things you write about in, yes. in here, actually. Well, it has been. And I think, you know, as I said, we can trace that back to a... Uh, I mean, you can trace it a long way back, of course, but but in our times, it's the, the post-war turn uh, towards the politics, politics of liberation. Uh, and I think we've, particularly since the 90s, we've reached a sort of peak mm. liberation, and we're now seeing it in all its ugly glory now with the working out of identity politics. Mm. So mm. Uh, the culture, I think, has gone wrong, we can't. We couldn't. Shouldn't want to try and turn the clock back to how it was because it wasn't right before either. But I think we can develop a better model for the future by recognising the mistake we've made. And I, you know, I, I do think I'm. I am perversely optimistic. I mean, I'm. I'm a traditionalist and a conservative. So, and I'm worried about the narrative of progress. I think mm. progress is a delusive, dangerous um, uh, religion. But we should, and I certainly do believe in the possibilities of the future. I think the future could be better than the past. And I think that our age could be tremendous, but we've got to make some changes. And, and actually, the argument I try and make in the book is that uh, if we reinforce those natural institutions and associations that give us meaning and identity, then we will have actually the liberal society that everybody wants, in which people are just much more relaxed with each other. I mean, you talk about judgmentalism. I'm accused of being judgmental by a lot of very judgmental people. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> They're the worst. And I, think, yeah. I, and I think we could be a lot yeah. nicer to each other. Mm. Uh, we could have a more civil society mm. uh, and, uh, and, and a more relaxed one, in which mm. it is totally possible to live in all sorts of extraordinary lifestyles. Yeah. Uh, and as the, which is the British way. You know, we've, we've, we've always mm. had this paradoxical idea in our culture that we're quite conservative, but we also have this sort of crazy... Know, exciting, edgy, mm. fringe to our culture and our society. Mm. And that's what makes Britain so attractive, I think. Mm. It's the combination of the settled and the traditional and the very, very familiar with the crazy, the flamboyant and the creative. Uh, but you can't have the crazy and the creative without the settled, traditional core. And I think by mm. attacking that core, which we've done in our culture and our economy for so long, we're losing the creativity and we're just getting a lot of transgressive... Uh, judgmentalism and ugliness and and dullness actually I mean a lot of this yes. is incredibly dull yes. they are under the illusion that in fact it's very very interesting mm. but just because you say you are something doesn't make you interesting yes. you know 
Um, finally, I just want to ask, um, the new politics of home, neighborhood, and nation. Um, I know you're a man of faith, aren't you? A great mm. faith. Um, is it possible to have, because it's not dissimilar to flag, family, nation, you know, yes. so I'm wondering, could you believe in, in, in all of these things without having the faith part? I think you can, and you know, I, I'm open about where I'm coming from, uh, as I think politicians should be. Nobody leaves their values, their, their metaphysics at mm -hmm. home when they come to work. We, mm -hmm. all, we, all, we all bring our ideas with us. But I don't make a single religious argument here, and I never do. Uh, you know, I, I point out that the roots of our society, including the roots of liberalism, the roots of secularism, uh, are in our, our history as a Christian country. Mm. Uh, I mean, the secular itself was a product of the church. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that liberals who disavow the Christian origins of, our, of, of the West are spurning the root that, 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 that gives them the flower. So I think we should acknowledge the Christian roots. I don't think many people really should disagree with that. But I'm not saying that you need to, certainly don't need to be a Christian or any sort of religion to believe in the importance of home, neighborhood, mm. and nation. I do think as a country that has a genuinely liberal tradition, we shouldn't be uh, penalizing or banishing to be outside the public square people of faith. And I do worry that increasingly it's becoming impossible to articulate your faith in public. And we do, you know, you, you do get, I'm afraid to say, you know, signs of a, of a coming, uh, 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 you know, something, something, something not, uh, see you've got the New Puritans by Andrew Doyle here. You've mm. got, you, you, have a, you have a curiously religious mm. uh, and very judgmental spirit coming in that is banishing the old faith. And I think that is very, very dangerous. But, um, but no, I mean, my, my belief is that in a genuinely liberal society like the one that we've created in this country in which it should be possible to have any faith, uh, including the, the faith of, of atheism. Uh, there's room for all, but do not please think that the religion we need is one of the self, and that's the argument I make. You know, yes. you are not God, I'm not God. Uh, and and we, should, we should not have a politics in which the only thing that matters is individual mm. liberation and self-realization. You have to have the identity that you get from the people you live among. That's the foundation of my politics. Yes, you have to have that identity as opposed to just simply a kind of innate identity that's born mm. of a characteristic like, you know, ethnicity yes. or sexuality. Yes. Um, well, look, thank you so much for that. Thank, thank you very you. much. Could you just hang around and answer one question for our, um, Certainly. our subscribers? Uh, Covenant, the new politics of home, neighborhood and nation by Danny Kruger MP. Uh, it's out now, isn't it? It is. Yes, it's out there. Great. Thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. Um, that's it for this week. We shall see you next time. Thanks. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, 
our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.